You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. With me today is a Broadway actor turned social media expert. Mo Brady works in the communications division of Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. He's also co-founder and co-creator of The Ensemblist, a podcast and blog that advocate for those not in the spotlight. One of my favorite things to do is to cause a ruckus. Like, I can say the things that actors are afraid to say because they're afraid about offending someone who may be hiring them in the future. You know, they don't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, hello, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I gratefully welcome you back to Why I'll Never Make It, a podcast focusing on the realities of a career in the performing arts. To take this season's podcast survey, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. Also, this episode begins a new segment on the podcast. I will be highlighting and featuring a favorite podcast, one that I listen to, ones that are getting a lot of buzz, or maybe one that you've never heard of before. It's a way for me to not only share other podcasts that might be of interest to you, but also to give back to the community that has been so welcoming and has been such a joy for me to be a part of. Several years back, when I was on the road with the Adams Family, I connected with Mo Brady, who had actually been in the Adams Family Broadway cast a year before I started the tour. But in the years since, he's hung up his dancing shoes and now works for an organization that helps performing artists in their time of need. So um, I started working at Broadway Cares in the summer of 2012, and it was a year later where Nico Graf Lanzaroni and I started the Ensemblist, uh, the summer of 2013. In his personal life, he is both a husband and father to a four-year-old son. Yes, I'm in the basement playroom, so I'm surrounded by uh, basically artifacts from my own childhood. I've got, you know, Brio trains and Legos and a large marble run in the background. Legos were one of my favorite things. It, basically, I loved building things. You remember those, like, wooden blocks or things? I just like to be creating things, tear it down, and then make something else. What I liked to do was to take uh, the Duplos, which were the large version of the Legos, and then the Fisher-Price people, and then I would create sets, and I would uh, 
move them around to the cast recordings of, you know, Into the Woods and, you know, other musicals. Just normal sixth grade stuff. You were much more of a musical theater geek than I was at that age. I came to it much later. I was like, it was like high school when that really started to hit for me. Nah, I I was uh, memorizing the names of cats and all of the colors of Joseph's coat. That love and knowledge of the Broadway community is the foundation for him co-creating the Ensemblist. It's always been sort of where my brain has led me, you know, for so many years. I thought, why do I know every Broadway credit of Jen Cody? This does not do anyone any good, (laughs) right? And somehow I've created this hobby and this sort of um, thing to spend my free time and a little bit of my work time doing where it does help to know all of the ensemble credits of Jen Cody. So it was it was something that uh, preceded my work on the ensemblist, but has definitely influenced it. Yeah, because one of our shared experiences is being in the ensemble for the Adams family. Correct. And for me, you know, in looking back at the different chorus roles that I've had in Summerstock or other places, Adams family was a unique experience in that it really felt like a family. You know, it really felt like a, a cohesive unit. Did you have that experience as well in the Broadway company? Uh, um, maybe. Um, the With the ensemble, I think definitely. I think that the ensemble, as we experienced it, was probably different than you because you were on tour, right? So right. you were having the experience of traveling together and... 24-7. Yeah, exactly. You're having sort of the benefits and the and the challenges of being in the same space as your coworkers all the time. Um, I think what sort of made a family feeling um, with the Adams family may have been the fact that our ensemble like yours was all individual characters, right? So there wasn't, there was a sense of, of what you're bringing to the table is unique and special. You know, you think about maybe sort of, more of an older stereotypical ensemble chorus and you're thinking, okay, these are all people who are trying to like look like the same thing or, or be the same thing. And one of the joys of, I think our ensembles in the Adams family was that there were 10 of us and each of the 10 of us were supposed to be different. Right. So you could sort of play to your strengths. Right. Right. Different ancestors. We even had different names, even though they were never used in the actual show. Oh, yeah. Did you guys get the names that sort of came from Chicago? What were the na- What was your name? Yeah, mine was Noah Vale. Noah Vale. Oh, no, we never got names like that. Yeah. No. From, from the pre-Broadway tryout in Chicago, before they went kind of the, the black and white ancestor route, you may know this already, they were all sort of like reds and purples and more sort of Elizabethan. Hmm. Like they didn't look like ghosts right. in the same way that we did uh, and you did. And so they all had like very Spanish sounding names like Consuela and Hilgado or, you know, sort of like very sort of Spanish and ancestral names. Um, but then, no, by the time you got to it, it was very pun worthy. I'm sure. Yes, they were, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was all about play on words and different things. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, nope, that, uh, all that stuff about Spanish culture is no longer important to the show. Let's just make them laugh. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I'm picking up that there may have been more of a division between the principles and the ensemble within your cast. Did it feel like that? Um, I think that it is not a secret that uh, the, the Adams family had a trying 
process, uh, especially out of town in Chicago. Um, it switched directors from its pre-Broadway tryout to the Broadway production. Um, and by the time I joined the company, which was eight months into its Broadway run, there were some pretty big divides backstage, people who didn't talk to each other, um, although they had a lot of time shared together on stage. And right. so there, there was some bad blood in that building. And um, it definitely didn't contribute to a general family feeling for that experience. You know, I was like all wide-eyed and ready to walk into the my Broadway debut. And I was like, it's happening. All of my dreams are coming true. And for at least the first few months, the energy was really bad in that building. And honestly, mm-hmm. it took, it took uh, a departure of um, some of the principals two months later, and then even more of the principals four months after that, where the energy really started to change. Hmm. And you could see the, you could feel that uh, there was more gratitude to be in the building. There was more appreciation for people. Um, And that's some of the fondest memories I have is towards the end of the run with the closing cast with people who uh, didn't have to go through those trying experiences that I think the original company went through uh, putting that show together. Yeah. I got to see the show twice and once before I auditioned and then after I, you know, I landed the show, then they took the whole cast to see it. And I got to well, see. That's crazy. You all saw it together. I'm sure that I'm sure, I'm sure we knew that. I'm sure we knew you were there, but that must've been so weird. For us. You're like, yeah. So it's like 20 of us or so that were there to, to watch it. But, um, but we got to see Brooke Shields in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, from what you were saying, I could certainly see she loved being in the show and you could tell that just from an audience you could tell that she was loving her part as morticia and was enthusiastically taking on the role i think feeling grateful to be there i you always got that feeling that she was happy to be in the building and um took the responsibility of leading a broadway show very seriously um on the other side of that we had the wonderful roger reese as uh gomez for the end of our run. And he just led with so much heart and had so much goodwill that having him as your sort of spiritual leader really uh, changed things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not, to put, yeah. not to put a too specific a point on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, that's, uh, I had Douglas Sills on earlier. And, and he's a dream. That's right. it. He's, he's also a, a person who leads with his heart. And that's exactly what he and I talked about, about his leadership and how he really was that father figure, not only on stage, but also backstage in leading the cast and and really being the heart of the company in many ways. You hear about it. um, Have you ever ever heard this phrase, uh, being number one on the call sheet? No, I haven't. Uh, It it, it comes from film TV. You know, when you get your call sheet for when you're called to the set, the number one is usually the leading player, the leading actor, you know, the star of the, the the TV show or the film. And I've always heard it kind of connected with the idea that the emotional well-being of a company is led by that number one on the call sheet, that they really have the responsibility to sort of make sure that people are being taken care of and sort of guide this, the energy of a show. And uh, if you have someone like a Douglas or a, a Roger, I think it really... Um, uh, changes the experience for everybody involved. Yeah. 
And so since the end of your experience with the Adams Family, you kind of drifted away from performing into other avenues. Was that a difficult transition for you? No, it was pretty hard. Um, I mean, not logistically. Uh, logistically, it was pretty easy. Um, while I was in Adams Family, I had volunteered for Broadway Cares. And then when I was unemployed after Broadway Cares, I volunteered. And then they asked me to apply for a job. And I did. And I went through that process. And I and I was offered a position. So sort of logistically, it all worked out great. Um, and emotionally to go from the place where I identified as an actor and this is how I want the world to see me and this is uh, how I see my worth in the world to uh, not being an actor and being okay with that. That was a process that took a few years. You know, there was a time where I started at Broadway Cares where I like didn't really want to be known for working at Broadway Cares. And that wasn't necessarily because I was still auditioning, although I was, but it was more like my friends were actors. I still sort of felt like an actor. Um, and it took me a long time to sort of accept that I was letting go of my space in, in, in the world as an actor and that I was going to be able to move into um, kind of a, different creative title, I guess, you know, kind of a, being a creator in the theater space in a different way. Yeah, because in acting, singing, dancing, this becomes a part of our identity. And going to those auditions every day becomes a routine. And so to break that, you know, I've thought of it myself. There, there have been those times where I've been down or I've been out of work for months and I think, oh, I need to do something else. But I, I can't bring myself mentally and emotionally to, to make that cut and go in a different direction. So I can only imagine what that journey must have been like. Yes. It, for me, it, I, so much of it came down to the idea that no one's going to believe in you if you don't believe in yourself, right? And so at that point, I had done a Broadway show and I was like, I want to do another one, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, got, I got to get another one. I got to make sure it wasn't a fluke. But I'm also thinking in the back of my head, well, no one else is going to think that I'm right for another Broadway show unless I believe it myself. Like, I... It's the secret, right? You have to like wish it into the world. And so I didn't want to not think of myself as an actor because then I was closing the door on believing that I would ever get back to being on Broadway. And so it took, it took some wrestling for me to say, you know what, I, that would have been a fine thing to do another Broadway show, but that's just not, that's not the path that I'm on. Do you see it as a pause or do you see this as a complete change in direction for your life? I mean, it's been a complete change of direction. I mean, I haven't performed in seven years, so it, it feels like it's not something that's going to happen. I mean, who knows? Talk to me in two years and I'll have moved to some regional place and I'll like have a, like a fully realized life doing, you know, productions of the music man and seven brides for seven brothers playing that old guy. I mean, it could, it could all happen, yeah. but it's, it's definitely not something I'm pursuing. And it's sort of not where I like see myself when I lay my head down to sleep at night. Back in 1987, the council of actors equity association founded equity fights AIDS raising money specifically earmarked for the Actors Fund HIV AIDS initiative. In the following year, the Producers Group founded Broadway Cares, which raised money sort of as an umbrella organization, awarding money to many AIDS service organizations around the country, including Equity Fights AIDS. 
Then, in 1992, the two of them joined forces and merged, establishing a new not-for-profit fundraising organization, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, so that they could help men, women, children across the country receive life-saving medications, health care, nutritious meals, counseling, as well as emergency financial assistance. And so it was about six months after the Adams family closed on Broadway that Mo Brady joined the organization. His experiences as both an actor and a dancer provided the perfect groundwork that he does for Broadway Cares. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kind of twofold. One was just the idea of being a storyteller. One of the primary things, especially when I came on board, was I was doing video. And so the idea of like, you know, an actor really knows how to tell a story in terms of a beginning and a middle and an end and what what do we want audiences leaving with and how do we grab an audience's attention at the beginning? You know, all those things sort of connect between acting and creating video. And so that I think really prepared me, my experience as being a storyteller. Um, and then the other thing is, is like, I'm constantly kind of digging back into my experience of how would I as an actor want to be spoken to in this moment? You know, if we're asking actors to collect for us after a show, what is the language that we want to be using? What do we want to be um, uh, highlighting as part of that experience? Um, I know what it's like to sit backstage in a metal chair in between scenes, pulling playbills out of a laundry hamper and signing you know, dozens and dozens of playbills for Broadway Cares. I know how sort of annoying that can be. And tedious, right? Yeah, I, And I remember. tedious. And so how do I sort of honor that experience um, and also say, yes, I know that signing these can be really tedious, but this is why you should do it. Yeah. Because each playbill you sign is another meal for somebody who didn't, who wasn't going to be able to eat today. Also, what were you going to be doing? Playing words with friends on your phone? <laughs> Checking Instagram? Right. Like sort of the gift of Broadway cares is like, there's very few industries where you get offered a chance to be philanthropic at your work. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything except for stand, hold the bucket and have people tell you good job in the play. Like you're, (laughs) you're being a philanthropic person, but while you do that, people are telling you you're good at the thing that you're hired to do you are good at this, right? Like it's, 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 the, it's the simplest ask when it comes to philanthropy. And yet there's a big hurdle that a lot of actors sort of have to climb over. You know, I, I'm going to have to catch the next train or I don't see how the donations really affect me. You know, there's lots of like, um, and so that's, that's where my experience as an actor can really help as I can sort of bridge that gap and say, yes, I understand all these things that you're feeling and why you might not, might not want to be donating your time or talents to Broadway Cares, but this is why it's a good idea in the end. And and that question of how does this help me, I think that's something that certainly I would think ensemblists would ask that more than principals for sheer fact of, of name recognition, but also for the pay, the, uh, I guess the appreciation we get from an audience. They of course love the, you know, the Gomez's of the world, but it's hard to, you know, that ancestor third from the left, how does the audience connect with them? And so for ensemble, for chorus, how does the work of Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS apply or affect them? Well, the gift of Broadway Cares for people in the theater industry is you're basically, you know, putting putting money in the bank for when you will need it. 
You know, I've seen that happen many a time where uh, a performer that I worked with needed the resources of the Actors Fund, whether that be because of the Freeman Health Clinic, um, you know, a doctor's visit or um, having resources from an injury, you know, getting, getting connected with a therapist, you know, like that, that resource has always been there for performers and I've seen it and used it myself as a performer that Mm -hmm. basically the money that you're raising for Broadway cares is being put into a bank you can take out of. And that way it's much like unemployment. The idea that you are putting money into unemployment when you're working so that when you need it, it will be there for you. The very, it's the very same thing with Broadway Cares. Those resources are there for actors and anyone else in the theater community who needs them. What we're really seeing right now in terms of um, coronavirus is there's so many more people who need help. And so that money that people have raised in the last months and years is going very directly to people who raised it through the Actors Fund. Anybody who's applied for an emergency grant or tried to get through the the unemployment process through the Actors Fund, that's happening because of the money that people raised for Broadway Cares. Yeah, I mean, for myself, it took about two and a half months before unemployment finally kicked in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a, a large gap there of waiting and even wondering if that kind of stuff was going to happen. And I, too, have used the uh, the Actors Fund as far as the, the medical stuff, because I was in between insurance. You know, I had I'd lost my equity insurance and so had to go to a doctor's visit and worked with them uh, through their network in order to get that done. So it's a, it's definitely something that I think we as uh, performers sometimes forget about that that resource is there. It it is a big gift. Yeah. And something that I think is really special about the theater community. We really do take care of each other in a way that many communities um, don't have the opportunity to do. So after your time with Adam's family, before the ensemblist had a name, what were those initial conversations like and what were you hoping to achieve with that? Really at that point, I was looking for a creative outlet that did connect me back to the theater community. You know, I I still sort of identified as as an actor person. Um, And so I wanted to have something that was creatively fulfilling, but connected me to uh, these people in this community that I really loved um, and allowed me to sort of have ideas and say, I want to do this and see it to fruition. You know, when you work in an organization, you are part of a larger mission and a larger um, team and that is great for many reasons, but one of the reasons that it's sort of challenging is you can't necessarily say, I want to do this and then have it done, you know, because you have to make sure you're speaking in the brand voice or, you know, you're collaborating with the right people and you're delegate, you know, there's like, there's lots of reasons and lots of great reasons why um, organizations with uh, staff as large as probably care sort of can't be as reactive as the ensemblist can be. And so I was looking for a way to be creatively connected. And so that was really the, the impetus at that moment was I wanted to tell stories in a different way. Certainly over the years, it's grown from a blog and a podcast, you're selling merchandise, you're now involved in so many other projects. Did you see or have visions of it becoming uh, so large? Yes. <laughs> That's good. Um, That's good. Yeah. Um, I think I think the gift of the ensemble, one of the gifts of the ensemblist is that it has a really strong point of view. You know, we champion 
the talented artists who work in theater ensembles. And so we can find a reason for and a voice to advocate for artists in a lot of different situations, you know? Um, And so in that way, I really did see it able to grow. You know, I'm, I I always thought that there was a capability. I mean, I I remember having very specific conversations in the first few weeks and months talking about doing 10 podcasts and having somebody say, well, when you're going to run out of things to talk about, right? You got swings, you got understudies, you got replacements, like what else are you going to do? And it's like, well, we found a lot to do because you because new things come up you know like new situations come up or you find new ways to sort of dig at the same idea and so as long as you're a creative person you can find new ways to advocate for this community yeah because there have been you know social media posts even campaigns of sort that focused on a tony award for the ensemble has that been something that's that's been a push or something that you've uh, been a part of it was really something I was going to push for this year. I was very excited. If you would have asked for me in like January and in February, I would have said, I really want to like cause a ruckus and I want to get, I want to make people tell me to my face why there's no ensemble Tony award. Right. And I was starting to do that in February. I was having interviews and like scheduling. And um, I, I, it'll be a conversation for the future now. That's yeah. not where, that's not where 2020 led us, but um I do think, I, I, I mean, I'd love for there to be an ensemble Tony Award. I also understand, I think, why it's challenging. I think it's really hard for people to change things. I don't, I think it's really hard for people to necessarily understand what an ensemble does. I don't quite know how it's any harder than knowing what a sound designer does. But um, right, of course, it was the Tony Awards that decided there needed to be no sound design award. Right, and, and then, then came back. And, and then yeah. they came back. They came to their senses and brought it back. So, I mean, I guess the same organization that doesn't see the need to uh, support and recognize sound also doesn't see the need to support and recognize ensembles. Well, and who do you call an ensemble? You know, one of the best ensembles I've seen in the recent years is Come From Away. Mm-hmm. But everyone in that company isn't necess- isn't technically an ensemble actor, according to actors equity, they're not on chorus contracts, they're all principles. And so you have to sort of parse what an ensemble means. And I think that the fact that there are so many definitions of what an ensemble means and what makes a good ensemble, I think is part of the reason there hasn't been like a unifying voice around it. Yeah. I also just think there's been nobody at the top who really wants to change it. You know, if you got somebody at the top of the Broadway league or the American theater wing who was like, I want to push for an ensemble, Tony, you know, and be closer to happening than it is now. So I also think it's sort of laziness. Right. Because producers by their very nature, they want to make money. Therefore they hobnob with the big stars, the principals, they want to push them forward, get people butts in the seats. So I get that. But at least from my experience with uh, the Adams family tour, that was one where the producer was very much about, everyone and didn't feel like he was singling out any one particular person as far as the success of the show. I think that really great producers understand that it doesn't take any work to be kind to an ensemble. You know, you make them feel valued. You give them bagels sometimes and 
you can really have a company that is excited to be working for you. And that doesn't take a lot of work and it doesn't take a lot of money. And yet it uh, is something that a lot of producers don't end up trying to do in the end. It's just not on their sort of hierarchy of important things. Do you see the ensemblist as kind of fulfilling that role in some way? I think one of my favorite things to do like I said, was is to cause a ruckus. Like I can say the things that actors are afraid to say because they're afraid about getting um, offending someone who may be hiring them in the future. You know, they don't want to ruffle any feathers. Yeah, labeled um, a troublemaker, right? Yeah, exactly. That it's, and so I can say, I don't care. I'm not trying to get hired for anything. So I, I can say, hey, guys, uh, there's only uh, – 17 Asian or Asian American ensemble actors on Broadway right now. Like what's up with that? Um, And, you know, I don't have to worry about somebody not hiring me. I also think that sort of advocacy spirit definitely connects to Broadway cares in some ways, you know, the idea that Broadway cares really sort of speaks up for uh, what is right and isn't afraid to, uh, get his hands dirty. And I think that sort of um, ethos has definitely um, bled into my work at The Ensemblist. Yeah. So I'm less afraid to say like, hey guys, let's all look at this problem over here. This <laughs> right. problem, right? Let's all look at that. What types of uh, meetings with people or venues has The Ensemblist allowed you to be a part of, you know, to really get in the face of those who could make you know, those decisions and changes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it really has. Um, I, I definitely think that uh, that may be changing in the future. I feel like there's a, a greater awareness of the ensemble and the ensemblist uh, year after year. And so there's certainly an opportunity for that to happen in the future. I don't necessarily know if it's something that is happening now. In a lot of ways, I feel like I'm sort of building the groundwork for that kind of systemic change. Yeah, because it's been decades, decades of one way. And so you're looking to have things look and feel another way. So that, yeah. that'll, that'll take some time. Take some time. It'll take some old white men dying and me becoming an old white man. <laughs> <laughs> and now I will change everything. <laughs> now I will change everything. Well, one of the things that changed Mo's life was an audition back in 2009. Telsey and Company, arguably one of the biggest casting agents in New York City, was holding the out-of-town production auditions for Catch Me If You Can in Seattle. Justin Huff was the casting director on that project. In an interview with Playbill back in 2016, Mo actually says he doesn't exactly remember Justin from that initial audition. He was too busy trying to impress Jerry Mitchell and Mark Scheinman and other creatives behind the table. But when Justin came back to Seattle to cast the epic Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark musical, he called on Mo and a few others to help with those auditions. And it was there that their connection truly began. Mo did end up auditioning for Justin once again for The Addams Family. However, in that same Playbill interview, Justin says that when it came time to decide do we hire Mo or not, he turned the casting over to Bernie Telsey himself, so that Justin could remove himself from any bias in the casting process. 
And it is this actor-casting-director dynamic that the two of them have had to balance during the first few years of their relationship. Uh, it was, it was, um, it wasn't easy, you know. I think there was definitely um, a power dynamic that was not, um, we tried not to feed into, but certainly as a casting director, you know certain things about productions or what shows are looking for or, um, you know, what's coming down the pike. You're just involved in different conversations and actors. And so that sort of idea of him having knowledge or experience that I didn't have, um, that was like hard for us to navigate for many years. And I, I would say it didn't really kind of alleviate itself until he stopped working in casting. Like it was just something that was always kind of there that he was in a position of power and I was not, I mean, it left because I stopped acting and he stopped casting. So, you know, our, but I think the thing that is also true is that our relationship was stronger than both of those vocations. You know, we were interested in being in a partnership and being married more than we were interested in being actors and casting directors. And so that is proven true in the end. Um, I'm sure other people would have less uh, challenges, but I, I'm not going to lie. Like it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest thing about our relationship for a long time. Because in some ways it could be seen as, Oh, you have an inside track. You, as you said, you know what casting directors are looking for, or he could give you, Hey, they want this or that. But was it hard to then take what he would say or. Oh, sure. You're taking the criticism or like, you know, Hey, can we run through these sides? And it's like, well, I don't like your answer. I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not how I want to do it. It's not how I want to do it. I'm an artist over here. Like there's certainly a level, an element of that. Um, I mean, I also think the reality is that casting directors are, oh, you know, creative people, but a lot of their work is really administrative and is about hurting the cats of the creatives that really do make the decisions. I saw that a lot. Um, especially as I stopped performing as a performer, I always thought, Oh man, the casting director is the person I really need to like kind of win over. Right. Let's do those pay to pay classes. Let's make sure that casting directors know who you are. I mean, casting directors can get you in the room, but man, they are not responsible for who gets hired. Right. So the more I sort of saw what my husband did, the less I was sort of in awe of this cool creative thing he got to do. And the more I realized that he just had to make a lot of spreadsheets. Right. Because in the casting directors that I've talked to and brought on this program, they're all about, look, we're just trying to get a job done. And if you can make that job easy, then great. And part of what makes that job easy for them is like casting directors are trying to facilitate the creative team's vision, right? They're trying to anticipate the needs of the real creatives on a project. Um, and so if you can be the solution to their problem, that's great, but it's not even necessarily the solution that they would choose. It's the solution that they think that the director or the composer or the choreographer would choose. Really, they're trying to anticipate the needs of those creatives, not imagine their own production themselves. Yeah, yeah, they're having to be the the voice, the eyes and ears of a creative team that may or may not know exactly what they're looking for, but then facilitate that. Or may have years of experience on a show and know exactly what they're looking for and maybe everything they maybe what they're looking for 
doesn't exist anymore because they've already found people that have done that for the last, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And now they're like, well, why can't we find anybody? And the casting director's like, well, we've shown you everyone and you just don't like any of your choices. Yeah. So it's, you know, I think it's sort of both sides. And I think that that's one area where casting and your work in the ensemblist do meet as far as advocating for minorities or advocating for this gender or sexuality and trying to get a more diverse picture on the stage. Yeah. I think that we certainly at the ensemblist get hyped when we see new kinds of stories and storytelling on stage. Um, I, will always love an ensemble where people feel like unique personalities. That's just kind of my, uh, what I love about a theater ensemble. You know, I can think about uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. I can think about Groundhog Day. I can think about these ensembles, which really felt where the people in the back really felt like living, breathing souls that uh, helped propel the story forward and gave like, purpose to the situations. Um, and so I, I'm always a fan of sort of the more diverse those storytellers are, the more realistic that world feels, you know, because if you have people of all different ethnicities or body types or ages, that's what the real world looks like. Yeah. Or maybe it's also the real world, the fake world that I want to see, you know, one of the most real ensembles, like I said, with SpongeBob SquarePants, that's not a real world, you know, but the fact that there was a gender non-conforming, you know, sea creature in that ensemble was like, I'm here for it. That's the sea. That's the that's the world under the sea that I want to I want to imagine. So right to see all the the various colors, not just within the set design, but also within the casting. Yeah, right, exactly. And you had mentioned that uh, that you and Justin uh, leaving casting, leaving acting. How were you able to then bridge the next chapter of your journey together as a, as a couple? Well, we've always kind of been on multiple journeys at the same time, right? We've, we weren't just an actor and a casting director when we met. And so we, we were, you know, um, people are passionate about traveling people that wanted to become parents. (laughs) And so there's been like sort of multiple journeys that we've been on simultaneously throughout our 10, 11 years together now. And so when it, when it felt right for both of us to be leaving this thing that we had self-identified as for so long and had found so much joy in, I think that knowing that we still had sort of this base of our relationship was uh, really important and is still important as we continue to make changes. And one of those new chapters was uh, was getting a son. What was right. that journey like in uh, becoming fathers? We started pursuing parenthood as a couple very early in our relationship, you know, in the first few years. Um, so even during the Adams family, you know, we were starting to learn about what the surrogacy process might be like. Um, and it was after we got married, which was the year after I did Adams family that we really started pursuing surrogacy. Um, so our journey to parenthood really was, I mean, kind of four years long from when we really started, Hmm. um, figuring out what this whole surrogacy thing would mean and the kind of companies we would work with and organizations we could work with and the costs involved. Um, so it wasn't, it was, that wasn't something that, um, happened after 
uh, our work as actor casting director, it was definitely something that happened at the same time. So how has fatherhood changed you as, as a person? Uh, I'm much more tired. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, kids ruin you for sleeping in. They really do. Um, uh, I, look back at those days where I could sleep in until 10 and think, Oh man, our, those are, those are great days. That's um, the life. Yeah. It is the life. Um, that is not the life that I live now. Uh, you know, um, I think, uh, fatherhood, your, your heart just opens up. You know, I definitely think there's a lot, um, that is so exciting to see through a kid's eyes. You know, it makes you be very present. It makes you realize when you're not being very present. Um, it allows you to sort of forget kind of the, the macro and focus on the micro, you know, whether that be a game that we're playing or, you know, a bath that we're doing or a story that we're reading. Um, and so for someone who is always kind of thinking about the future and loves to plan and loves to sort of, you know, put spreadsheets together, the idea that that is helpful in parenthood, but isn't all that parenthood is about. A lot of what being a parent is about is getting down on their level and being, really being present with them in the moment. So that is, that's definitely changed me, you know, and now our son is four, almost four and a half. And so it, it is at the point where you go, well, I can't imagine not having a kid. That sounds really boring. Um, like I, especially, especially in this time um, of coronavirus, where I feel like so many people have felt kind of adrift. You know, if you don't have a job or you don't necessarily know what the future is going to bring, one thing I think that is a is a symptom of that is the feeling of, gosh, I just feel so lost at sea. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm I'm here. And I've never felt that through this process. I've never woken up one morning and thought, I don't know why I'm waking up today. I know exactly why I'm waking up today. It is to take care of my family. It is to spend time with my family. Right. And you got a four-year-old crawling into your bed at 8 a.m. You got to, you got to, and the 8 a.m. is pretty late. So we're lucky, but um, yeah, but uh, you, you got to get up. So um, I think there's a lot of purpose that I didn't necessarily feel before I was a parent that I definitely feel now. Thanks to our son. And have you and Justin already had the talk about what if your son wants to get into the arts? What oh, that's going to be like? Let's hope not. <laughs> no, we don't. But at the same time, you can't, <laughs> I mean, with, 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 with all the love, it's just, it, I'm sure all, I'm sure all careers are hard. It's, it, it, it's just our experience is like, we know the challenges of being an artist and man, it does sound nicer to be an electrical engineer. That being said, yeah, definitely more job security. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I'm sure if we tried to guide him just to be an engineer, he'd end up being an actor anyway. So the idea that you just really have to like let them do what they want to do is, is feels very true to me. I know that's certainly how my parents um, raised me was to follow my interests and passions. Um, you know, if I, if I got to have any say in it, I'd say, what if we uh, did these STEM camps instead of those theater camps, but right. you know, in the end, he'll do what he wants to do. And, and and this is something as a non-father myself, does your own upbringing factor into how you choose to raise your own son? Either, oh, I want to do more of this or I don't want to do that. 
I'd really say it's sort of the combination of both of us. I think we've both seen how each of our parents parent and we can sort of see our tendencies to either follow in their footsteps or not follow in their footsteps. And so there's like a definite sense of, Ooh, in this moment, I want to sort of channel this grandparent over here. And I would rather not channel that grandparent over there. Um, so there's, there's like certainly a sense of learning um, from things that we feel like both worked and uh, were less helpful. Yeah, definitely. Because I hear that children are the utmost honest. So if something's working, they'll let you know. And if it's not, they'll let you know as well. Yes. And they're also um, uh, pretty, uh, I don't want to say selfish, but they uh, are very in tune with their own needs. And they will (laughs) let you know if something that you're doing is not in tune with the way they would like things to go. Maybe that's just a four-year-old. That's where we are today. But you know what? I th- I think we all grapple with that, even in our 30s and 40s. So <laughs> I think that identification with our own needs and what we want to do kind of sticks with us for a long time. Um, certainly. Having a, having a voice in the world. We all want to feel like we're being heard. We all want to feel like our opinions matter, whether you're four or you're 40. And do you feel like that now in the, the the chapters of your life that you've gone through and now being a part of Broadway Cares and the Ensemblist, do you feel like that your voice, that what you want to say to the world is coming out? Yeah, uh, I do. I do. Um, but sort of part of what I've always wanted to do with the Ensemblist and I think Broadway Cares is Amplify. I think that's always been sort of the the verb. Um I haven't necessarily felt like as much as of a creator as I have somebody who says, Hey, everybody, this is an important story. Let's all look at this. So let's all listen to this. And so that's really one of the gifts of the ensemblist is I can sort of drive attention towards people or instances or endeavors that I think are worth attention. And what's a recent example of, of a story that you were able to highlight? Um, one is that for the last four years, I've created something called the State of the Ensemblist Report, which is basically kind of metrics of the number of people working on Broadway under course contracts. And we break things down by gender and we break things down by ethnicity and the number of people making their Broadway debuts. And so it's... Um, it's just kind of a way that we've been able to advocate and sort of shine a light on, on something, you know, nobody did that before. I'm not sure anyone would do it if we didn't do it, but it's a fun creative project. And I think it's, you know, as as somebody who loves spreadsheets, I think it's interesting. And so I've worked pretty hard to make that happen for the last four years, thanks to people at equity and playbill and graphic designers and, you know, our, our team members uh, at the Ensemblist. Uh, one of the other things that we've really been focusing on more recently is uh, advocating for Black actors in, the, you know, sort of the cultural conversation around Black Lives Matter. Not just a cultural conversation, a political conversation, a social conversation. I think that a lot of um, other theater podcasts haven't really known what to say. A lot of the theater podcasters are white. Um, and so, and haven't really had sort of a stake in the conversation. And we've always been an organization that strives to have a variety of voices in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of age and experience. And so 
pivoting to amplify even more Black voices wasn't something that felt out of tune with our mission, wasn't something that was particularly hard for us to do, um, because we've been advocating for these artists for years and really been kind of building these experiences. So in the past weeks and months, when the sort of cultural conversation has met up with the social and political conversation to um, enhance the number of Black voices we hear, uh, it has been not difficult for our, me to say to Black actors, hey, can we share your story? They feel like, oh, that's a person who's going to share my story. Well, I trust them. I know them. They aren't coming into this as an opportunist, but I can trust the ensemblist to tell my story. So that's been a real gift as well. Yeah, because I'm one of those white podcasters that you were talking about. And so it was... Me too, baby. Yeah, it is. It's... <laughs> It, it can be because race is a difficult subject to tackle for anyone because you don't want to step on toes. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't, it can be a minefield, but I think it's one that done appropriately and with respect that it can be done in a thoughtful way. And I also think it's important not to be afraid to do something wrong. Um, you know, if your intentions are good, it is okay to have somebody call you out and say, hey, that's not quite the way that you should be talking about this or framing it or the hashtag that you should be using or not using, you know, like there's so it's okay to make a mistake in public if your intentions are right, because then you can just fix that mistake and learn from it. Yeah. And I think if you're too afraid to make a mistake, then you're never going to say anything. Being afraid is never going to get you anywhere, whether in your career or in your life or in creating the change that you want to see. Yeah. I think, Coming back to my career as a performer, I think I was very interested in fitting into a box as a performer. You know, I had a very singular goal for a long time, which was to be on Broadway. And I didn't care what the show was, and I didn't care what the message was, and I didn't care what the part was. I just wanted to check that thing off of the box, mm-hmm. right? Check that box. Um, and so there was a lot about that experience. I mean, especially when you're auditioning to be an understudy, that's like, oh, I can fit into this box for you. Look how well I can fit into this box for you. Um, I mean, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think I booked my Broadway debut by doing a Wes Taylor impression. You know, like I sort of tried to talk like him and I tried, you know, his speech patterns and the things he was doing in the show. And I'm, you know... I also had some sort of natural gifts and some talent, but that was like basically my Wes Taylor impression that booked me Adam's family. Um, Mm. Now I don't have to do an impression of anybody. (laughs) You know, I'm not trying to sort of fit into any box at this point. I'm trying to create a new box, which is so much more exciting and filling and scary, but isn't necessarily harder. (laughs) It's in a lot of ways much easier because it feels right. And in the end, isn't that all what we're striving for? To find that perfect place for us, to find a home, whether that's in our career, in a relationship, or a community that can support us. And through the different paths Mo has taken these last several years, he has certainly found that home. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there's a new segment here on the podcast. So now let's get started with this week's podcast recommendation. I think it's only fitting and appropriate that the very first recommendation should be 
The Ensemblist. Asmo explained there an online advocate for talented artists working in theater ensembles, and they carry their message out in blogs, over social media, and of course, the podcast. It's been so much more fruitful than us simply being a theater podcast. I think there's been a lot of theater podcasts over the years who interview big stars, or maybe they interview ensembles, or maybe they interview people from specific shows. Like that's all great, but what I think has given the ensemble its staying power and allows it to thrive is that we are advocates. And so whatever we do, whether it be the podcast or it be the blog or it be the merch even, I mean, it's all to kind of advocate for this community. They have conversations with experts on the topic of Broadway ensembles, sharing their insights with candid interviews. And in addition, there are monthly episodes that feature readings of the most popular posts from their blog. Now, I must admit that yours truly was invited to write an article for their blog. The Ensemblist podcast has had more than 1.4 million downloads, and it was recently named one of the top 50 best-selling performing arts podcasts of all time. And Feedspot has also declared The Ensemblist one of the top 20 theater podcasts available. And I am grateful to announce that Why I'll Never Make It is also on that list. So this week's recommendation without any hesitation is The Ensemblist. You can go to theensemblist.com or look in the show notes for a link to their podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode where Mo Brady answers the final five questions. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and there are two ways that you can support the work of this podcast. One is by going to donate.winmepodcast.com. The second is by sharing this episode with someone who you think could benefit from this conversation. Well, let's get together next week as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.